Father, I pray that you'd, uh, by the power of your spirit, really be at work in us this morning as we wrestle with this text. May we hold it up to our lives and uh, may it work in us. May it challenge us, convict us. Most of all, may it transform us. Help us hear the, the priority of what you desire more clearly this morning perhaps than we've ever heard it before. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Anybody know what that is? Where that is? Is anybody a baseball fan in here? What is that? It's the Baseball Hall of Fame. Cooperstown, New York. 1936 it was built. Boy, you guys are disappointing this morning. <laughs> anybody ever been there? Oh, well, why didn't you recognize it? <laughs> oh, well, speak up. <laughs> Baseball Hall of Fame. It, it is kind of interesting to me when you think about that, um, what that says about our culture. Why do we place so much value on what somebody can do with a little ball? Has that ever struck you as odd? You know, you can catch it, throw it, hit it. Uh, you can end up there and people remember you. I've often thought it would be interesting that an archaeologist a thousand years from now is digging up America and they stumble upon the, the Baseball Hall of Fame. What conclusions are they going to draw about our culture and our society? About who we are and what we value it. It's interesting to think, um, what would it be like if God had a hall of fame? In God's hall of fame, what, what would it take to get inducted? And uh, who would be there? It'd be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? I mean, some obvious people who would make it is Abraham, Moses, David. You know, there'd be memorabilia. Maybe you could see the Ten Commandments. Maybe uh, Moses' staff. Maybe Paul's scrolls. Maybe the, the cape of Elijah. It'd be really cool. Maybe a few splinters of the cross. And, you know, if there was a Hall of Fame that God started... My guess is that most of the people who would make it there are people who never left their mark in history from our perspective are people we wouldn't know. Because God looks at history very different than we do. It does raise an interesting question. What, what would it take to get in to God's hall of fame? Would it be an issue of incredible obedience, a magnificent prayer, a, a huge generosity, martyrdom? Uh, what, what would it take I mean, it raises the question of what matters. T.S. Eliot, in one of his poems, raised the question, what is the difference between what matters and what seems to matter? Good question. Maybe even a deeper question is, what is the difference between what matters and what really matters? From God's perspective, what is the criteria we should use to evaluate life? What's the standard? A number of years ago, we were hanging some hooks in one of uh, our rooms at home, and I had gone in the garage, and I grabbed a yardstick, and I measured very carefully, and we put up the hooks, and then I stepped back and looked at the hooks, and they were all off-center. And I thought, wait a second, I measured those, so I got my ruler, and I measured them again, and all the measurements were right. And then I looked more closely at the yardstick, 
it had the first six inches broken off. If you have the wrong standard, everything's going to turn up screwy. Come to a passage today where Paul makes the argument that what really matters to God, his standard, is this thing called love. It probably doesn't catch us by surprise. But what's interesting in this passage is Paul is going to make the argument and make it very strongly that it's not uh, just that love matters. He's going to make the argument that it's really the only thing that really matters. Everything else. Everything else isn't nearly as important. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, you remember the last two weeks we've been focusing on spiritual gifts. And, and the people in Corinth, uh, they were enamored with spiritual gifts. They thought that was the way you marked uh, people's spirituality. The more gifted they were, especially with spectacular gifts, if they could work miracles or speak prophetically or speak in tongues or doing, do something that was kind of a wow gift, uh, they were impressed. That's what they valued. That's what they wanted. So at the end of chapter 12, Paul says, hey, desire eagerly the more important gifts. But I want to show you a more excellent way. So he's going to leave this issue of gifts for a moment and turn his attention to love. And when he says, I want to show you a more excellent way, he's really talking about a way of life. So this morning, as we work through 1 Corinthians, we're going to uh, verse, uh, work through 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to look at two issues, the necessity of love in verses 1 through 3, and the nature of love uh, 4 through 7. The last part of the chapter deals with the permanence of love, and we'll leave that for some other time. So the necessity of love. Um, Paul is going to introduce us to, to three people here. One is a person of great eloquence. One is a, a person of incredible knowledge. And, and one is a, a person of amazing commitment. But notice what he says about these. He says, first of all, if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He's talking about somebody who has the ability to speak all the languages of the earth. And, and not only the languages of the earth, but, but the languages of angels as well. Now, that's pretty impressive. I heard about one man who, who knew 34 languages, at least could understand 34, could speak most of them. But even he could not speak with angels. I mean, this, this really is a wow gift. I mean, think what kind of missionary this person would make. Just incredible stuff to be able to speak all these languages in languages you don't know worldwide. That's phenomenal. But Paul, notice what Paul says. He says, look, if you have that gift, but you don't have love, you're a clanging gong. A resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. Just noise. The word for gong here is a word that describes a, a spherical piece of metal that they would hang from two ropes and they would beat it and cause this noise. And they would use it in pagan worship to cause this kind of frenzy uh, among the worshipers. But the problem with a gong and a cymbal is they don't have any music in them, right? Have you ever seen a duet for gong and cymbal? 
you know, a, a sonata for gong, a waltz for cymbal. Uh, I mean, even when they have a solo, it's only uh, one or two notes. Because all they do is make noise. There's no music there, nothing of substance, nothing of importance, just noise. <laughs> so then he moves to this issue of knowledge. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and the gift of prophecy was the ability to speak forth the mind of God to a particular situation and at times even speak forth the future of what God was going to bring about. It's an amazing, amazing gift. And not only that, this person can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. I mean, this person is literally a know-it-all because they know it all. They have no questions. There are no theological conundrums to them. There are no mysteries, no unanswered questions. This person knows the answer to the question, why? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. And not only that, prophecy and knowledge, but, but they have this incredible faith. And this is not saving faith. This is the kind of faith that causes miracles to happen. They believe it and it occurs. I mean, this is incredible. These kind of people are the kind of people they write biographies about. These are the kind of people who start missions movement. These are the kind of people who start incredible churches. I mean, just, I mean, if we found somebody like that, you would have a new senior pastor and be ecstatic, right? They're, they're great. But notice what Paul says. He says, look, as amazing as all these gifts are, if they do not have love, he says, I am nothing, a cipher. Then he goes, he moves from the gifts into the realm of commitment. And he says, if I give all I possess to the poor. So this is not a person who simply writes a check once a month to help the poor. This is a person who, who gives it all away. I mean, this is radical Radical commitment. They depossess themselves of all their stuff. That's how committed they are to the cause. And then he goes on. And give over my body to hardship. That word for hardship means to burn. So most people think if I give my body to martyrdom. If I give my life for my faith. One commentator says that it may be referencing this notion of slavery. That somebody is selling themselves into slavery. Because when they did that they would burn a mark into your hand. So... They sell themselves into slavery for the cause of Christ. I mean, <laughs> this person has commitment. I mean, you can't get any more committed than this person. But notice what he says. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. And the word there for gain literally means count. If I do all that, give all my stuff away, give up my life, but don't have love, I count for nothing doesn't matter. Paul is giving us this radical idea. Because what he's saying is when it comes to what matters, what really matters is just one thing. And that's love. Imagine you have 50 bucks and you go to the grocery store. And you give the grocer 50 bucks to buy your groceries and he puts it in the drawer. And he has to pay his electrician, so he writes an IOU, puts it in the drawer, takes the $50, pays his electrician. The electrician is going home, he needs gas, stops at the gas station, takes the 50 bucks, give it, gives it to the owner of the gas station so he can pay for his gas. The owner of the gas station goes home, has to pay his rent, so he gets his 50 bucks 
with a bunch of other $50 bills and he gives it to the landlord to pay his rent. The landlord has a daughter who is away at school and he's writing her a letter. And he writes the letter and just before he seals it, he takes that $50 bill and he puts it in the envelope, seals it and sends it off. And she's ecstatic. I mean, $50. She takes the $50 and uses it to buy textbooks for her studies. And the bookstore owner takes that $50 along with the other $50 bills he's collected and he takes it to the bank. And there the bank decides that it's counterfeit. The $50 bill was a forgery. Now the 50 bucks went around and did a lot of good. But when it got to the one place where its value was accurately evaluated, it came up zero. Nothing. Paul is saying, man, you, you might have incredible gifts, incredible knowledge, incredible commitment, and people may applaud you, and people may admire you, and you may gain all kinds of fame, and you can be incredibly effective and, and make a big difference and a big splash. But when you come before God, where things are really evaluated correctly, if you are not a person of love, And it's nothing. Nothing. See, Paul's point is love is the absolute necessity. Now, there's a couple things to note about this as we think about it. The first has to do with motive. We come to this passage, and we like to think that what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, if I do an action, and my motive behind that action is not love, then that action is not worthwhile. And although that may be true, that's not the point he's making. Because he's talking about all these things, all these actions, but his conclusion isn't that the action is worthless. His conclusion is that the person doing the action is worthless if they don't have a life characterized by love. So know what he's saying. He's saying, look, you can do things that people think matter, but if your life, your life isn't characterized by by love, then, then you're nothing. You gain nothing. You're, 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 you're simply noise. Because love is the essential ingredient. My wife uh, uh, makes prosthetics, uh, eyes, noses, ears, facial body parts. And uh, one of the key things she uses when she does that, she carves a mold and then they make it out of silicone. Well, silicone, when it comes to you is always in two parts. There's a part called the base and a part called the catalyst. And to get the silicone to harden, to become something of substance, you have to add the catalyst to the base. If you leave the catalyst out, the base never hardens. And if you don't mix them in the right way, she simply says you have an incredible mess. That's kind of Paul's point. He's saying, look, you may do all this stuff, but if you're not a person that has the catalyst of love in your life, then all you end up with is a mess. Nothing of substance. Which gets us to the issue of significance. What is it that you look for in your life to make it important, to give it significance? 
I think we all wrestle with that stuff. You know, I told you about my son, Max, uh, was thinking he'd quit his job at Raytheon and wanted to go back to school, to seminary in theology. And uh, he turned in his notice a few weeks ago. So into July, he's going off to Europe for two months, coming home and going to school. And I'm going, whoa, dude, why? And he'll tell you why. And he, he told me this. He said, Dad, I want my life to count. I, I want to do something significant with it. And I can relate. I mean, one of the reasons I went into ministry and did this whole thing is I wanted my life to count because I wanted to make sure the things I was giving myself to mattered in terms of eternity. And we often do that. We have all these things that we think matter. And they do matter. But, but, but Paul is saying it's not those things that really matter. I mean, think about what you do in your life to give it significance. You, you, you know, you, you <laughs> earn a lot of money, get a great job, you know, trying to make a name for yourself, climb in your career, do great ministry because we want significance. But Paul is turning it upside down. He's saying, look, the thing that really gives you significance isn't all those things that you think give significance. It's whether or not your personal love. Imagine that you went in for, this is a bit of a corny illustration, but imagine that you went in for a performance review with God. And uh, he set you down and he says, well, tell, tell me how you're doing in life. And you're saying, oh, it's going well. You know, I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying a lot. He even got to share the gospel. Been a good, doing a good job in, in, in developing my business, doing it for your glory. Uh, doing a great job with my family and uh, you know I'm, I'm really really involved in ministry and God says great 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 yeah, yeah, but I get all that but what I really want to know is are you a personal love because that's what really matters You know, if you take a piece of paper and you write zeros, whole line of zeros, and you add that whole line up, what do you get? This is not tough. You get zero. Take that paper and fill the whole thing with zeros and add them all up. What do you get? Zero. But if you can take a one and put it almost any place on that page then you have something, right? One zero over, it's 10. Two zeros over, it's 100, three, 1,000, a million, a trillion, a billion, a gazillion, just because of that little one. And Paul is saying, that's what makes the difference. Without love, it's just zero. But with love, it's everything. Is that the marker of your life? You know, what, what it really gets at to is this question of values. What is it that we value? What is it that's important to us in life? It's interesting. When you go to the New Testament, it's very obvious that love 
is his highest priority. I mean, the word love is used 250 times in the New Testament. It's mentioned in every New Testament book. It's the center of the whole ethical system of Christianity. Uh, Jesus says love is the fulfillment of the law, loving God, loving people. Peter says above all else, love each other deeply. I, I mean, it, it just drips off of the New Testament. Every place you turn, that love is at its very core. But is that what we value? Is that what we value in ourselves? Is it what we value in our kids? Is it what we value in others? Uh, a while back, I was having a discussion with another parent. I have five kids, and this person had kids, and we were talking about what we want for our kids, you know? And you always have that in mind when you're raising your kids. I mean, you want them to be happy, right? You want them to do well in school and get good grades. You want them to do well in athletics. You want them to get into a good college. You want them to find a good job, marry a nice spouse. You want them to get a good enough job that they can move out and not move back. You know, have all these things we want for our kids. And we were talking about what those are really important. Finally, this person said to me, you know, Nick, what I really want? I want my kid to love well. To love God and to love people. Absolutely right. Because in the end, that's what matters. What kind of lover are they? What kind of lover are you? Thinking about that and even applying it to uh, church. <laughs> you know, when you tell people about Waterstone, what, what do you want to be able to tell them about your church? Oh man, the preaching is awesome. Yeah. Or, oh, the music is great. Or the children's ministry is dynamic. Or, you know, they really got this kingdom thing down. Or they're really involved in, in the community. I mean, what is it we want to tell them? You know, oh, it's the, it's the coolest place or it's growing like crazy. The ba building's magnificent or it's the in thing. I mean, what, what is it that matters? From Paul's perspective, what matters is, is the church that loves well. That's what matters. But I'm not even sure that's the question we ask. Well, how well do we love? Helen Hayes said this about charm and people, but I think it's applicable about love in the church. Love is that blessing that when a church has it, does not need much else. But if it does not have it, nothing else the church has or does matters much at all. It's true. What kind of lovers are we? What kind of loving church is Waterstone? So the necessity of love. The, the second point is the nature of love. Uh, you, you know, 1929, Cole Porter wrote a song, What is this thing called love? Ask the Lord in heaven above, what is this thing called love? And it was a hit, and it's been a hit for 
oh man, over 50 years. Uh, Nat King Cole sang it, all kinds of people sing it. I think one of the reasons what it was hit, it, it, it defined this notion of what love is, or at least asked the question. And that's a question all of us ask. And, and it's interesting, in our culture, we basically don't have a clue what love is. I mean, look at how we use the word. I love hot dogs. I love my wife. I love my car. I love the Broncos. I love my kids. <laughs> it's all over the place. But, but mostly what we mean by it is this kind of feeling. But it's very interesting to me. Paul doesn't go there. Look at how he defines it. He gives us description of love by giving us 15 uh, descriptors. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. Is not proud does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, it's worthwhile to go through all those and talk about each one, but that would take us a long, long time. So what I want to do this morning is just give you uh, uh, three observations that will help us understand what Paul is doing here. The first thing you need to note is that when Paul talks about love, he focuses on behavior. In other words, in Paul's mind, love is an action. And thus, it's an act of your will. Now, it's not that feelings aren't involved. Feelings are. It's just that they're not primary. The behavior, the action is primary. And because of that, uh, love is something that can be commanded. I can't, if love was primarily an emotion, I can't command it. I can't tell you, be happy. Oh, you be sad right now. Come on. It doesn't work that way. Now, we can influence our feeling, but uh, that influence is always indirect. It's like the involuntary muscles, our heart or our stomach. You know, I can't say to my heart, okay, slow it down. Oh, no, a little faster. It doesn't work that way. But I can exercise, I can do things that are good for my heart and impact my heart and change it over time. And it's the way feelings are, indirectly I can influence them. But Paul saying, no, this, this love isn't, isn't a feeling so much as a, an attitude of mind that results in behavior. And thus it can be commanded. Because it, it is an act of the will and a, a decision event. And that Jesus can say, hey, lo love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Well, I don't feel love for my enemies. I don't, I want to, well, yeah, I can do that if it's an action. I, I don't have to feel. I, I need to act. And because it's this decision event, it's a choice I make. And because it's a choice I make, it becomes a virtue. Now here's the problem. We see it primarily as a feeling. And we especially see it as a feeling when we take it into the realm of marriage. Because when it comes to love in marriage, we define love as this romantic thing that oftentimes happens to us and overwhelms us and we think oh this is my soulmate this is the person and we get married and then that fades 
And it's because we've mistaken the feeling of love for what true love is. It's interesting, they're doing research on this and that infatuation you feel when you fall in love, they've come up for, with a name for it, it's called limerence. And they've researched limerence and one of the things they found is that over time, limerence fades. It just does. It disappears. May raise it head at a different time, but it, it fades. In fact, they've done studies between people who get married on the basis of romantic love and people who get married out of an arranged marriage. And you know what they found out? This is interesting. First three years in an arranged marriage is much harder than those who fall in love. But after that, arranged marriages actually do better than romantic marriages. Really? Yeah. You know why? It's because people in arranged marriage watch it, walked in with the expectation of this is going to be a lot of work. People in romantic marriages say, oh, this is awesome. It'll always be like this. There's my soulmate. I'm just glide along. And it disappears. And they go, crap, this is a lot of work. He said, love is always a choice, especially in marriage. If you come to me and you say, hey, I just don't love my spouse anymore. You don't love your spouse anymore because you're choosing not to love your spouse anymore. You didn't get zapped into this. You're not going to get zapped out of it. Love is a choice. And if you don't love your, choice, uh, your spouse, it's because you've chosen not to. Well, I don't have this feeling. Yes, you don't have limerence anymore. Join the rest of the world. That's not what marriage is based on. That's the lie of our culture and media. It's why so many people are into this notion of serial monogamy. Oh, I like this feeling of limerence. Disappears. Oh, time for somebody new. I like this feeling of limerence. Oh, sometimes. Folks, love is a choice you make on a daily basis to love the person you committed your life to. And it's not easy. And it's not always enjoyable. And they're not always lovable. It's a choice. Which gets us to uh, the second thing. Love is always dependent upon the lover, not the one being loved. It's subjective not objective. What I mean by that, it's dependent on the subject who's loving, not the object, the one trying to be loved. We always want to find that person, that right person or that right situation who, who's uh, worthy of our love and who is easy to love. And uh, the right, right person will always be easy to love. It doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, Jesus says... You know what Jesus thinks about loving people who are easy to love? He says, you know, if you love your friends and you love your family, <laughs> pagans do that. Who cares? No, the, the, the challenge is to love those who are not easy to love, to love your enemy. I was talking to somebody after second service. He says, you know, Nick, I was thinking about this. I just don't have any enemies. And I was thinking about that. Most of us don't think we have enemies because you know what we do? We push them out of our sphere of influence so we don't have to deal with them. 
when Jesus said to the Jews, love your enemies, they knew who that was. That was the Romans. It's not because they had relationship with them. They, those guys were them. Right? And we all have them that we don't like, that we think are evil, that we think are wrong. They're enemies. And <laughs> whether it's Muslims or immigrants or, or foreigner, or whatever. Yeah, Jesus said, those are the ones. Love them. It's not dependent on the one being loved. It's dependent on you, the lover. When I think of um, this kind of love, I always think one of those punching dummies. Have you seen those? When I was small, they're blow-up punching dummies, and they're about this tall, and they have sand in the bottom. And they're great because you can smack them, and they go down, and you know what they always do? They come right back up. Knock them down. They come right back up. Throw them across the room. They come back up. And I think that's what he's describing here. Now, you have to be wise, and you don't let somebody abuse you, but you hang in there, and you all, love is doing what is best, the highest good for another person. And that takes wisdom and discernment, but it just doesn't give up. It just doesn't abdicate. It says, I'm going to love you because my love for you isn't dependent on you, it's dependent on me. Now, if you're listening, you should be getting pretty discouraged at this point, <laughs> right? Because honestly, you know, you think, Nick, you're, you're asking me to, to be a linebacker like Von Miller. It's not going to happen. To play basketball like LeBron James, to sing like Adele. <laughs> I can't do it. It is not going to happen. And that's part of the point. You look at this list and you say, I, I really can't do that. And you can't on your own. You need a power beyond yourself, outside of yourself, to, to empower you with the ability to do this. And that's why Paul in Galatians says that the fruit of the Spirit, the very first thing he mentions is love. I mean, this kind of love takes supernatural power in your life. And if you simply try to do it on your own and depend on yourself, it's not going to happen. You'll be able to do it for a little while and then you'll cave. Because we just don't have it in us to be able to love other people this way without God's supernatural power in us. And the key to that is to figure out and experience that God the Father loves us. Because when we experience God's love for us, then we can turn around and love others. First John says we love because he first loved us. Sometimes what we think is that if we become this loving person, we love other people, we can do it enough so that we can earn God's love. If I love others, God will love me. But that's the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel says no, uh, you can't love others so that God loves you. You just have to realize that God loves you and because he loves you, now you can love others. That's the essence of the gospel. You don't earn God's love, it's a gift. But when you receive that gift, it enables you then to turn around and give that gift to others. I like to think of life like this bucket. 
uh, uh, we have this bucket that we need to fill up with love. Um, and we go through life trying to get our bucket filled. And in fact, we, we get into relationships. I mean, we may love other people, but really the reason, because we're so self-centered, is we want to be in relationship with them and love them a little bit in hopes that they will love us and in loving us, fill up our bucket. And when somebody isn't filling up our bucket, we say, well, enough of that. Let's go find somebody else to fill up our bucket. And we go through life that way, looking for our bucket to get filled. And it's really the focus, not my love of others, but do others love me? But you see, the gospel comes into our life and we experience God's love, the Father's love. And when you experience the, the Father's love for real, guess what happens? He fills up the bucket to overflowing. Now I can go and be in a relationship and I don't have to primarily be concerned about, okay, will they fill my bucket? Come on, can they give me a little? Will they make me feel good about myself? Will they meet my needs? No, because in him, he's filled it up. He's gonna make sure I get what he knows I ultimately need. And with that becomes, comes a huge freedom. Because I don't have to go around in life trying to use other people to fill my bucket. I can go around in life now just, just loving from the overflow of the experience of God's love in me. This is a radical thing to experience the love of God. But when we experience his love, then we're able to turn around and love others. So then, let's look specifically at the list. This is how he sees these. I'm going to give you a quick Description, and then we're going to do a little exercise to get you to wrestle with these. Patience is not a patience with things. It's a patience with people. Kindness is a, a positive goodness uh, reaching into somebody's life to make a difference. Does not envy. Envy happens when you use other people as the standard and you measure yourself by them. Uh, does not boast. Boast, the word here is a windbag. This is the person who's always talking about themselves because they always have to be the center of attention, the center of the room. Love is not proud. In other words, it doesn't think that it's more important than it truly is. It's not rude. Uh, there are things that are shameful or inappropriate in any culture. Love figures out what those are and, and then makes sure that it conforms to the cultural standards. It's, it's etiquette, not for etiquette's sake, sake, but etiquette for the sake of others. And then it is not self-seeking. And maybe this is the heart of it. Because love at its core is seeking the best for another person, not seeking the best for yourself. But we're all wired to seek the best for ourselves. It is not easily angered. Love gets angry, but it gets angry at the right time and for the right reasons. And usually not in protection of itself, but in protection of others. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love practices the fine art of forgiveness and doesn't take revenge leaves that for God. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Isn't out there looking for somebody else to fail so that they can be uh, feeling better about themselves because they're not like that person. Always hoping for the best. Doesn't gossip because they're not looking for evil in others. 
always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Pretty tough list. Let me give you a little exercise. This is something I want you to do now, but you can do this all the time. It's a great thing. This passage is a great mirror to hold up to yourself. Uh, and the way you do that is you go through this passage and every time you see the word love, you put your name there, all right? And you put your name there and you say that and then you listen and see how God speaks. So I would say, Nick is patient and see what God brings to mind. And you go, well, I don't know. Not last week. <laughs> Maybe next week. You pray about it. Or, or Nick is kind. Nick does not envy. Nick does not boast. You do that and then you listen and it becomes this great mirror that looks into the depth of your life and helps you wrestle with whether you're a person of love or not. So I want you to do that now. I want you to kind of bow your head and pick up at the screen and put your name in every place for love and then just listen. And after a few minutes, I'll close us in prayer and then we're gonna sing a hymn that reminds us of God's love for us. Go ahead and pray. Father, may those uh, descriptors of love be true of us. May your spirit so work in our hearts and in our lives that we become people who are characterized by love. May that be what our culture and what our world sees in us and sees in our church. May it be the heart of who we are. Do that kind of work in us, Father, and in this church, we pray in Christ's name.